0: Hello, this is episode 17 of this podcast. The podcast is called True Crime Nightmare and the cases I cover are both solved and unsolved murders, cases from the UK and from all over the world. My name is Jane Reed. This case is the solved murder case of five men by a man called Colin Ireland, otherwise known by the media at the time anyway as the Gay Slayer. All five murders occurred over a short time span, only a few months, in 1993. All five murders took place in London, England. The victims are Peter Walker, who was a 45-year-old man who worked as a choreographer. The second victim of the serial killer was a, a man called Christopher Dunn. Christopher Dunn was 37 years old when he was murdered by Colin Ireland. He worked as a librarian. The third victim was a man called Perry Bradley III, who was 35 years old at the time of his death at the hands of Colin Ireland. Perry worked as a businessman and was originally from America. The fourth victim of Colin Ireland was a man called Andrew Collier, who had been 33 years old at the time of his untimely death at the hands of Colin Ireland. The fifth and final victim of Colin Ireland was a man called Emmanuel Spiretti who had been 41 years of age when he was brutally murdered. Colin Ireland was in his late 30s when he was arrested for the murder of two men originally in July of 1993. Colin Ireland was born on the 16th of March 1954 in Dartford, Kent in England. Colin Ireland had had a bad upbringing. His parents were only teenagers when Colin was born. Colin Ireland never knew his father because... Colin's parents had split up before his birth, and Colin Ireland's mother did not put his name, his father's name, on the birth certificate when she registered the birth in 1954. His mother worked in a newsagent shop and did not earn very much money, certainly not enough to support herself and Colin. Luckily, Colin's maternal grandparents offered to provide them both with a roof over their head, and they able to move in with them which must have helped a great deal at that particular time in their lives. They lived there at the family home for five years until 1959. The family home had been in Dartford, Kent. Colin Ireland's mother decided after five years that she needed to take some responsibility so along with Colin who was only five years old at that time she moved to Gravesend which is also in Kent, England. Gravesend is just under eight miles away from Dartford so she was not moving very far away. You can understand her wanting to look after her son and provide for him by herself if possible. According to Colin Island, this move was just the start of years of physical and emotional upheaval in his young life. His mother was not trained to do anything, any job, so that she had to take very low-paid work and often part-time as well, which meant that they hardly ever had any money at all. His mother found it increasingly hard to cope and they both ended up moving back in with her parents in less than a year. In 1960, mother and son moved to Sidcup, which is also in Kent, and then later to Maidstone again, which is in Kent. After another short stay at Colin's grandparents' home again, they then moved to another home in Dartford, along with his mother's new partner. They would live there for about three years. His mother married her partner, who was an electrician, and he had apparently always treated Colin very well. Unfortunately... Their financial fortunes had not improved due to the fact that the stepfather was not always working and and certainly not as often as he needed to, to provide for the family. He only worked occasionally so they were always in trouble financially. Due to the fact that he had moved home so many times during his young life, Colin Island found it difficult to settle at school. He had attended a total of six primary schools between the ages of five and ten. He was often bullied because he was always the new boy and did not fit in very well. He would often not attend school and his mother would cover for him instead of punishing him. And often, even when he did bother to turn up, he was quite often late His mother clearly did not do him any favours by letting him miss school and it shows, in my opinion anyway, that she was not supporting her son very well during this time. His early life certainly seemed unsettled with very little support from anyone. In 1964, when Colin Ireland was 10 years old and with the same financial problems suffered by his mother and stepfather and often having to move homes and schools, already so many times in his short life his mother became pregnant which was only likely to put even more pressure on and strain onto the family his mother placed colin into foster care at this point to try and ease the financial burden his mother had another son and after a while colin went to live with her mother his mother stepfather and new baby brother Presumably their finances had improved at this point. However, shortly after the reunion, the stepfather walked out, leaving them penniless again. Despite his upbringing, he did remain very close to his mother. His mother married again when Colin Island was 12 years old. Fortunately, this time things worked out and life became more stable and their financial prospects improved as well. However, finally being part of a new stable home life did not stop Colin from getting into trouble. He would commit a few crimes long before he decided to go on a murder spree. He was 16 years old when he committed his first crime. He had stolen four pounds off someone but was caught out. This is the first time that he came to the attention of the authorities, but no court action was taken. Instead... He was sent to an approved school in Kent that dealt with boys who had some sort of emotional problems. The council for this area arranged it all, which was quite quite a thing in the day. I think they used to do it for quite a few troubled families. Colin Ireland committed a robbery at the age of 17. He had moved to London at this point, but did not have any legitimate way to support himself. He was caught and found guilty of robbery. His sentence was served at a Borstal, which is a reform school for 16 to 22 year olds. Obviously, more violent crimes are not necessarily served at a Borstal, but sometimes the judge will think it the right place when somebody's committed a non violent crime, particularly. He was released from Borstal at the age of 18. His criminal activity did not end there, though and he went on to carry out two burglaries. He also stole a car and caused damage to a property, all this by the age of 21. He was sentenced to 18 months in prison. He ended up serving 12 months in a crowded London prison before being transferred to Lewis Prison, which is a prison in East Sussex. Lewis is a large town in East Sussex in England. When he was released from Lewis Prison in November of 1976, he moved to Swindon, which is a large town in Wiltshire, South West England. It was in Swindon that Colin Ireland met his first serious girlfriend. She was five years older than him and she already had four children. This relationship did not last, however, and they split up after a relatively short time. In 1977, Colin Ireland was found guilty of demanding with menace, which basically means he threatened to hurt someone if they did not give him some money or other items. Once again, he was sentenced to 18 months in prison. He was in and out of prison up until about 1985 for very similar offences. He did, however, find time to meet another woman who he would go on to marry. Her name was Virginia Zamet and they met in 1981. She was nine years older than him. She was 36 at the time. Virginia was paralysed from the age of 24 after a very serious car accident and she had a daughter who was only five years old when Virginia met Colin. The couple got married in 1982. By all accounts, he doted on his wife and stepdaughter, for a while anyway. They lived in Holloway which is in London however as was typical in his life this happy family life did not last for very long. He went back to committing crimes and it was said that he had an affair with another woman. The couple divorced in 1987. Whenever he could work when he was not in prison he took on any low-paid job that he could find to tide him over. In 1989, Colin Ireland met a lady called Janet Young. She was the landlady of a pub in Devon, the county that Colin was now living in. They became very serious very quickly and Janet allowed him to move into the pub after just a week of knowing him. Janet had two children. One child was 11 and the other was 13 at the time. The couple married after just three months. Although to outward appearances the couple seemed happy, it did not last One day, after only a few months of marriage, Colin dropped his wife and his stepchildren off at his mother's in Kent, which is about 200 miles away from Devon, and he left them there and took the family car and emptied the joint bank account. Colin Ireland just disappeared from their lives. No reason was apparently given to Janet. In 1991, when his marriage with his marriage over, he moved to Southend-on-Sea, which is roughly 40 miles away from London, where he would go on to commit five brutal murders. He lived in a homeless shelter and did odd jobs to try and earn some money. He clearly had no real direction or ambition, though, and just wanted to make ends meet and nothing more. In 1993, Colin Ireland, who was already known for committing robberies and other crimes which he had served time for wanted to step up to a far more serious crime. He wanted to murder gay men and he wanted to become recognised as a serial killer. In early 1993 Colin Ireland said that he had made a New Year's resolution to become a serial killer. This is what he told the police after he was arrested. He admitted later that he had always been fascinated by the famous well-known killers out there. He chose London as his murder ground but continued to live in Southend-on-sea, a distance of about 42 miles away. Colin Island had a good working knowledge of many towns and cities and knew the area in London where the Coalhearn pub was due to its reputation as a known gay pub. The Coalhearn pub is situated in Brompton Road, in West London near Earls Court and had a colourful history over the many years. It has been said that although Colin Ireland publicly stated that he was heterosexual and he had been married twice before, he did like to meet up with men and he was interested in men who would let him be the more dominant partner. He would openly look for men who liked passive sex and also men who enjoyed being tied up and tortured. However, he claimed later that he only wanted to be the dominant partner with strangers because then he could tie them up in order to subdue them and then torture and finally kill them. He claimed to the police that he, his crimes and choice of victims were not at all sexually motivated. He said that he felt that they would be the only group of people who would let him tie them up and that they would not be missed by society. He also said that he would often just approach men in the pub and strike up a conversation before persuading the man to let him go back to his place with him for sex, which, according to Colin, this was all agreed to. He always went to the pub in London ready for action to kill, once he had decided to start his killing spree anyway. His backpack contained rope, gloves, a knife and a change of clothes, as well as ties. It was on the 8th of March 1993 that Colin Ireland decided that the time was right to begin his murderous activities. His first victim was a man called Peter Walker who was 45 years old at the time of his death. He had worked as a choreographer which he apparently really enjoyed. He liked to go to the pub to relax and sometimes meet other people as well. Peter Walker often went to the Cohen pub and would sometimes meet other men there. He had a flat in Battersea, which was just under three miles away from the pub, which was located in Earl's Court. Colin Island tied Peter Walker up. We only have the murderer's own words, really, to describe what happened, along with some evidence at the crime scene. But it seemed as though the victim had been bound, tortured and finally suffocated by using a ba- plastic bag which was then put over his head. The killer left two teddy bears in a 69 position on Peter's body. Peter Walker had two dogs, which Colin Ireland locked up in another room out of the way. He left the dogs locked up, and after he had thoroughly cleaned the crime scene as best as he could, he left. Colin Ireland became anxious when the news did not mention a body having been found and was apparently worried about the two dogs. He phoned a journalist from the Sun newspaper and advised them about the dogs, and also that the the dog's owner was dead. When the police finally got to the, the flat, they determined that Peter Walker was indeed dead. The post-mortem revealed that although Peter Walker had had tyres used to, to bind him, they had been removed after his death and had also been taken away from the scene by the killer. On the 20th of May 1993, Colin Ireland went looking for his second victim. He went to the Colhern pub again. He came across a man called Christopher Dunn, who was at the time 37 years old. Christopher worked as a librarian and lived in Wealdstone in London, which was over 11 miles away from the pub. At first, when his body was discovered, it appeared to the police that he had died accidentally during a sex game that had gone wrong and because it was backed up by the medical personnel at the time, his death was not originally classed as murder. The case also came under a different set of investigators due to the belief that it had been an accidental death. The police did receive an anonymous phone call linking the deaths later on. On the 4th of June 1993, Colin Ireland went once again to the Colhern pub in the evening and met a man called Perry Bradley III, who was 35 years old at the time. Perry Bradley was an American businessman and kept his private life to himself. He had an apartment in Kensington where he took Colin Ireland that fateful night. Kensington is only about a mile away from Earl's Court in London. Colin Ireland once again tied his victim up and tortured and finally strangled Perry Bradley III. This time a plastic doll was left on the body. Presumably it had been found in the victim's apartment. Once again the police received a phone call from who they believed to be the killer to again taunt the police. On the 7th of June 1993, just a few days late after he had killed Perry Bradley III and only a few hours after Perry Bradley's body had been found. Colin Ireland was out in London looking for yet another gay man to murder. He returned once again to the Colhern pub in Earls Court and met a man called Andrew Collier. Andrew Collier was 33 years old. They both went back to Andrew's flat and the usual scenario played out. This time, however, there was an added gruesome feature. Not only did Colin Ireland choke the life out of Andrew Collier, but he also did the same to his cat. He arranged the body of the cat on Andrew's chest. Colin Ireland had previously been meticulous about cleaning up afterwards, but this time he left a clue for the police. He had touched a window frame at the victim's flat, but had not wiped down the frame. A fingerprint was discovered during the police investigation that followed. The murderer had become reckless. It did not put him off finding another man to murder, however, because just over a week later, on the 15th of June 1993, he murdered his final victim. <laughs> The final victim of Colin Island was a man called Emmanuel Spiretti, who was originally from Malta. He had been 41 years old when he came across his killer. The pair ended up back at Emmanuel's flat and the same scenario played out once again. The police were unsure that a murder had occurred until the killer decided to telephone them. Colin Island, who did not give his name, asked the police if they had found Emmanuel's body yet. Fortunately, Colin Ireland was not able to continue with his vile murder spree. The police had by now started to gather evidence and it was only going to be a matter of time before he would be caught and put away for life. Although initially the five deaths were not linked, even after the cause of death for Christopher Dunn had been changed from accidental death to murder, the police now realised that they were all the work of one person and finally admitted publicly that there was a serial killer on the loose. The killing of the final victim was now enough to prompt Scotland Yard to launch a massive awareness across the capital and also nationwide Many television appeals were made by the police to try and get as many people to come forward with any information that they had as possible. Information gained by the police came to light that Manuel Spiretti, the latest victim, had travelled by train with another man on the evening of his death. Luckily at the station that the men passed through, which was Charing Station, there were four CCTV cameras fixed on the entrance and the actual station itself. When detectives working on the case looked through all of the many images, they finally came to an image of a person who was identified as Emmanuel Spiretti, who was also with a unknown white male. The image was blurry, but they could tell that he was a heavyset, tall, white man. Though the... Through the appeals and the press conferences the police were able to get the images of the man along with an e-fit that had been prepared earlier when a potential witness had described the suspect who he said he had seen with Emmanuel on the day that he was murdered out to the media and public at large to try and track the killer down. Colin Ireland must have known that he was soon going to be identified. He contacted a solicitor and made a prepared statement regarding Emmanuel Spiretti. However, he was not admitting to murdering him or anyone else. He claimed instead that he had met the victim and that they had both agreed to go back to Emmanuel's flat for sex. He went on to explain that once they got to the flat, Colin was surprised to see another man already there. He declared that he said, quote, he did not want a threesome, unquote, and he then left. He obviously thought that would explain away why he was with the man who later that night ended up being murdered, but he tried to distance himself from having anything to do with it at all. It did not work, however. The police were sure that he was the serial killer. Colin Ireland had only come forward because of the CCTV images, and also the e fit, which were by now all over the media, he was instru- he had instructed a solicitor who then contacted the Metropolitan Police and gave them Colin Island's statement, which then led to the police questioning Colin Ireland further, as well as the CCTV images and the e fit The police already had voice recordings from when the suspected killer had on numerous occasions contacted the police. When experts compared Colin Ireland's voice to the voice of the unknown man on the police phone recordings, they were sure that they were the same man. However, as is often the case, they still needed some more evidence before they could actually charge him with any of the murders. Mm They did keep Colin Ireland in custody though. The police in England are able to hold a suspect without charging them anywhere between 24 hours to 96 hours with special permission, especially if the person is suspected of committing murder. Colin Ireland initially refused to talk to the police investigating the five murders. The fingerprint that had been discovered in Andrew Collier's flat on the window frame would also eventually turn out as belonging to the suspect. Fingerprints were, in the 1990s in England, still having to be analysed manually, not like today when they can be scanned and put into a computer, so it did take longer back in 1993 to process, but... Most importantly, it came back as a match to Colin Ireland in the end. Colin Ireland was charged with the murders of Andrew Collier and Emmanuel Spiretti due to having enough evidence. Colin Ireland denied being the killer for the next four weeks, but he then finally confessed to not only the murders of Andrew Collier and Emmanuel Speretti but also for the murders of Peter Walker, Christopher Dunn and Perry Bradley III. Because he confessed to all five murders, no actual trial was held. Colin Ireland appeared at the Old Bailey in London on the 20th of December 1993 and was sentenced by the judge to life imprisonment for each of the five murders. His sentence was upgraded to a whole life tariff by the Home Secretary at the time, which means he will never be allowed out of prison. Colin Ireland died in prison on the 21st of February of 2012 at the age of 57. He had been serving his whole life tariff sentence in Wakefield Prison, which is in the north of England. His death was classed as death by natural causes. The post-mortem revealed complications with his lungs and also problems with a fractured hip. The police investigation of this Serial killer was looked at due to the suspicions that some of the police were homophobic. This speculation and accusations came after the first killings, but they did go on to solve the crimes in the end, and so nothing really came of it. The media at the time had already started to write about a serial killer being on the loose killing gay men before it had even been widely acknowledged by the police, so they sort of blew it up really and blamed the police for being homophobic but they were, it was looked at and apparently nothing came of it. The police said later that the they felt that Colin Ireland had been an organised killer and he had often gone prepared. He carried his murder kit with him and knew where to go to target his potential victims. He also cleaned up after the murders and wiped away potential evidence apart from the one fingerprint that he had left behind. The police also encouraged the killer to talk whenever he phoned up taunting them because they knew it could help them identify him. Also, he might just say something that would help them convict him later on. All of the killer's victims had been killed at their homes. All of the men had been found naked and had signs of either being bound or still had ties on them. They had all been strangled as well. The police also later said that they had felt that the serial killer had enjoyed the notoriety that killing would give him. Colin Island said after he had confessed to the killings that he liked to imagine the police's reaction when they came across the dead man. He also said that he felt excited by what he had done and how the police would view him. It was often It has often been reported that Colin Ireland only targeted gay men because he himself was homophobic. There had not been any evidence of any of the men being sexually assaulted at all. It also had a few bad experiences when he was younger with men trying it on with him, which he said he did not like or respond to at the time. The judge who sentenced Colin Ireland in 1993, Mr Justice Sachs, said that Colin Ireland was, quote, exceptionally frightening and dangerous, unquote, adding, quote, to take one human life is an outrage, to take five is carnage, unquote. Professor David Wilson, a well-known criminologist in the UK, said that he believed Colin Ireland was a psychopath. It was seen that Colin Ireland had wanted to be known as a serial killer for quite some time it also told the police when he was still free and contacting them by phone that he had read lots of books on serial killers and wanted to be known as one colin island had also stolen cash from his victims not huge amounts only what they had on them usually apart from one of his victims who gave him the pin number to his bank account account Card which enabled the killer to later withdraw hundreds of pounds from his account. When Colin Ireland was asked about why he stole cash from his victims, he apparently said that it was because he needed the money for his train fares from Southend on Sea to London and back again. The Cohen pub where the killer picked up his victims had to this point in time a fairly colourful past. It had been owned by the Cohen family back in 1866. It had a reputation over the years of being quite bohemian. A local resident remembers going there back in the 1930s when it was known for hosting drag entertainment which was obviously quite unusual for the time. Drag artists today are much more commonplace and people enjoy going to their shows. But back in 1930s, it must have been a much different prospect, even in London. It also became known later on in the 1970s as a notorious leather bar with blacked out windows. Many famous people over the years have allegedly visited the pub, including Freddie Mercury, Kenny Everett and Rupert. Everett, no relation. It is now a gastro pub, which probably attracts different clientele to how it did back in the day. The case of Colin Island is not as well known as some of the serial killers, but I think although he was only on the loose for a very short time, he caused a lot of damage. He killed five innocent men and caused a lot of distress to their family and friends and caused so much heartache for many people over the years. Thank you for listening. The credits for this episode go to murderuk.com, murderpedia.org, Wikipedia. Crime and Investigation UK documentary called Critical Evidence. Thank you very much for listening.